Hello? Does this thing work? This is the Peak Boredom Podcast. Three, two, one. Hi guys, welcome to Peak Boredom Podcast. <laughs> Today we have Reina, who is from my... We met in middle school, I think? And yeah. today we're going to talk about law. <laughs> <laughs> we basically feel like there's a lot of stigma around law and lawyers, so we decided to bring Reina on to talk a bit more about what it's actually like and the situation surrounding it, essentially. Alright, hi guys! So happy to be here. Um, so nice to finally reunite with you after middle school and and, yeah. um, and and nice to meet you. So yeah, let's do this. I can't wait. So excited. So let's start with the first question then. Why did you personally decide to pursue law? Back in high school, um, my passion was environmental issues, um, human rights issues, education. Um, so like back then, I really wanted to make a change to contribute to society and I still do. Um, and so I read that law is actually a powerful tool for social change. Um, you know, it can empower people, it can hold people into account, it can fight for progressive laws. Um, and studying law would be the foundation of all that. So early on, I knew that this was the path that I wanted to take. And so I started to, you know, read a lot about law, um, a lot of novels, a lot of books, um, even TV shows. I kind of just wanted to get a vibe of it. And then it turns out I actually really, really like it. So, so I applied um, for law school. And the thing is, if you want to practice law in Indonesia, you have to go to law school in Indonesia. So um, I applied for um, University of Indonesia uh, for law school. And yeah, I got in. So. Then, <laughs> then it's been law the whole time. How different is it from the TV shows? Yeah, honestly, not not that much difference. <laughs> I mean, it depends on which TV show, though. If you, um, which one do you watch or you've heard of? I forgot the name of it. There was one, but I forgot the name. Is of it Law and Order? No, it was not Law and no. Order. Is it Suit? No, it was Suit. Oh, Suits was shot in Toronto. Fun fact. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's really cool. Um, because a lot of people, like when they say, um, when they want to talk, when they want to ask me about how learning a law firm is, they'd be like, is it like Suits? And I'm like, um, no, we don't have any Harvey Specter. We don't have any Mike Ross. We don't have any of those characters. And, and of course, the legal system is different. Like, um, court, court is different. But... Um, if you look at, you know, how, how they work, um, uh, the types of cases, sometimes they would discuss, sometimes um, they would be handling a lot of things at once. I think that part is similar. Um, it kind of looks like, although they only handle one case per episode, like it kind of shows they have a lot of caseload as well. They have a lot of um, work that they need to finish that day. So I guess that's similar. <laughs> And then um, the dressing up part, always having to look formal, that's definitely also similar because we, we need to, you know, present ourselves to look good. 
um, in front of our clients and then if we go to court in front of the judges uh, so in a way it is similar in some other respects but we need to remember it's completely different legal system and that's where the difference is also there's no like drama like tv worthy <laughs> drama i hate to disappoint it there's no tv worthy drama in um in most firms um you might find in some firms but yeah not in mine <laughs> thankfully i just remembered the name of the show it was called the good fight but i don't oh. know oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i've never i mean um, i've heard of it but i know that it's like um a spin-off from a show that I really, really like. It's called The Good Wife. I know um, The Good Wife. Yeah, so, so she's like this fierce, brilliant female lawyer. And, uh, and yeah, and I, and I really, really like it. So, so I'm like, those are definitely one of the TV shows that kind of somehow inspired me. <laughs> so yeah, I remember you in middle school being really into environmental and helping people just the yeah. same as me. But I think it's really interesting the path you're taking and the path I'm taking. So yeah. uh, I guess another interesting fact is what kind of law do you practice? I just learned that there's a lot of, well, I didn't, but like, I know there's a lot of different laws, but I didn't know what that be. So what kind, <laughs> of, what kind of law do you do? I work at a law firm. So my law firm is like an all-service firm, which basically um, we expertise in almost all sectors of the law. We have to be able to practice all areas. So I've had a chance to handle or assist in a wide variety of cases. Like I can, I do um, litigation, arbitration, um, and then handling an acquisition of a company, transactions, um, financing, advising on energy or capital market, and sometimes even environmental law. So, um, and I'm thankful for this, um, a lot of different experiences and having to research different areas of the law and having to actually apply it to a variety of situation because it actually you know helps me solve um, other legal problems for other clients so it kind of helps me to think outside the box in a way um, so yeah so I so I basically have to learn all of that and working at a law firm but um, I think in all not every law firm is the same like some law firm they only do litigation some law, some law firm they only do um, capital market so it really depends on the law firm mine just happens to be um, a very all-service one can you give us like a breakdown of like what different types of law there are in general okay well there's a lot so okay we need to look at like um, whether it's litigation or um, corporate right litigation is basically uh, representing your client in court but in corporate law you kind of handle um, the more business side of it um, you handle companies basically and uh, corporate law there would be banking and finance capital markets energy, insurance, labor and employment, uh, mergers and acquisition, infrastructure, what else, shipping, tax, right? Uh, it really depends on the industry of the company that you're handling, right? If you're handling a shipping company, then you know you have to be able to handle and know a lot of all these uh, regulations on shipping law. 
if um, it's a real estate company, you would have to be able to know all of that um, in the real estate law. So um, again, it really depends on uh, which client you're handling, but that is basically different scopes or areas of law. Wait, so what kind of, I don't know if you can break it down for us in a simpler manner. So with biotech, for example, right? There's four different types of biotech. There's medical, industrial, environmental, and when they say environmental, they mean like agriculture and marine biotech. Can you break yeah. that? Because I think I've heard of family, family law, then you've yeah. got corporate law, and you've got, what was it, criminal law? Are there any others that I'm missing? Yeah, you have civil law, criminal and civil law. Um, yeah, there's definitely family law. But I mean, there's a lot of, of um, the different types of law. Uh, it really depends on your expertise. Like for example, for example, if you're doing family law, you'd be handling you know, custody battles, um, divorce cases. If you're doing corporate law, again, you'd be, you'll be mentioning that. And if you do litigation, you'd be either doing criminal litigation or civil litigation. And, and criminal litigation is basically talking about, you know, someone crimes and stuff. Um, whereas civil litigation, it would be when someone gives you a loss, uh, if someone hands you a lawsuit on the basis of the civil code. For example, like when you don't fulfill an agreement or when um, you've done, or, or tort, I think, um, the terminology in Canada and UK, if I'm not mistaken, right, tort. So yeah, there's a really a lot of different areas of law because every aspect of the society needs to be regulated by law, right? So I mean, you can't, I can't really break it down to like four, like biotech is. <laughs> Basically, everything that needs to be regulated becomes law. And so you need to, um, and there's a different set of um, rules for each of that, right? There's a different set of protocols, there's a different set of books and everything. So basically, since it has to regulate everything in the society, there's really a lot that I really can't um, break down into just four groups. Okay, let's move on to, there are definitely a lot of myths surrounding law and lawyers. So we'll hand you some and you tell us what you think and what it's actually like. <laughs> okay. Is law truly a male-dominated industry? Okay, this is really interesting. Uh, I personally don't feel this way because my law firm is very women empowerment. I mean, we have more female partners than male partners. They're all really brilliant lawyers who also happen to be mothers and wives. So so um, I really don't see like in every day that it is a male-dominated industry. But I do know that in general, the field is like outside my firm, um, for other law firms and for basically the industry as a whole, it is still pretty much dominated by men. And the thing is, well, if we look at law schools, there's the same amount of women going to law schools as much as men. But I think when it comes to like the profession itself, I do still see more men than women. And I think there must, there's, different reasons for this. I mean, I was discussing with um, some of my colleagues and some law students, and I think um, part of the reason why would be the, the working hours and um, the demands from clients that would make, um, well, that will make it not a very suitable choice for some women who, if 
they would like to, you know, spend more time taking care of their kids, which I totally respect, understand, and appreciate. Yeah. But again, even if it's a male-dominated industry, there are still a lot of brilliant women lawyers around who are not any less amazing than men. And I mean, sometimes even more. So I think even if it's seen as a male-dominated industry, whether you're a man or you're a woman, it just what matters is just how good you are at your job. And you know, if you work hard, it doesn't matter how the industry is. You know, you can pave the way for other women. And I think this is why I think in the future it won't be so male-dominated anymore. You mentioned like long working hours. How? What are the working hours actually like for a lawyer? Uh, the, <laughs> we don't really have working hours. <laughs> like other industries can say, okay, their working hours is nine to five, or working hours are nine to five, or or um, ten to seven, or stuff. But we don't really have it. Like we just we're done when we're done with our work. Like finish work when it's all finished. And sometimes you know we, there are times where we go home at like seven normal time seven is a normal time <laughs> but um there are also times where you know you would go home in the morning it really depends on your caseload and, and yeah a lot of people definitely see this as like a downside of working in a law firm but i think you know it's a it's a pros and cons like if if you're actually going home late that means you do have a lot of work which is you know actually a good thing but again, you know, you get tired. But if you if it's if you find that it's your passion and it's rewarding. Another myth that's always surrounding law and lawyers and how we talk about them is that lawyers are generally corrupt and morally gray. So what are your thoughts on that? Because it's controversial, yeah. I mean, coming yeah. from our country, I think that's an even more. But is it yeah, true? yeah. Well, I get where your question is coming from, and that is true. Like in Indonesia, um, that's how a lot of people perceive lawyers but that's not true not all lawyers because a profession doesn't really make you act a certain way like it depends on the people right yeah. not the profession mm -hmm. so every profession whether you're like what a doctor or an architect I mean every profession has morally corrupt people because it depends on the people and likewise it depends on the lawyer and the industry the thing is lawyers have a set of ethical rules that they're required to follow and they are required to follow the law. So it's definitely frowned upon in the industry for someone to you know, be corrupt and morally gray. Um, but I do think that um, this misconception is also derived from the notion that lawyers would do anything to win a case. Like, for example, you may hear a lot in Indonesia um, cases where they bribe judges to win a case in their favor. And th that is horrible. And sometimes I, I know that people would see lawyers defend people that they thought were guilty and, you know, they would automatically associate the lawyer with also being guilty. But, you know, that's not always the case. I think we need to remember that in law, everyone is innocent until proven guilty and everyone is entitled to legal representation. So that lawyer that is defending someone you think is guilty is not always automatically morally corrupt. I personally have never represented anyone who I thought was guilty, but it doesn't necessarily mean that um, they're corrupt or morally gray if they do. Yeah, I think that's a really popular misconception because of all of that. But the truth of the matter is, what I see 
and you know what I know is that most lawyers are a lot of them are very honest they're respectable they're morally upright um, a lot of firms really strictly prohibit any form of dealings with public officials especially my firm my firm is really strict on that a lot of firms like for example uh, like a popular one is uh, the popular practice is for example when you're in court you would have to get what do you call that like a court decision and sometimes those are those used to be really difficult to get and it could take a long time sometimes but you know some people would like bribe the people in court to get it done faster just with it with anything right like any I mean, this is like super common to just get things fast, done faster. But a lot of firms, including mine, completely frowns upon that. We really don't, I mean, not, not just to win a case, but literally anything that basically means you have to make a dealing with a public official, anything illegal is completely frowned upon. So yeah, again, not all lawyers are corrupt or morally gray. Related to that, I guess there's always this term associated with lawyers as well, which is the devil's advocate. So what are your thoughts on like those kind of titles and words? Um, the devil's advocate is not really what you call a lawyer. I mean, a devil's advocate <laughs> is something um, that you do like when you want to challenge an argument. Like uh, basically, when I'm trying to make an opinion, you have to be my devil's advocate to test the strength of my arguments. So a devil's advocate is someone that tests, that you know, kind of um, goes against your arguments to just test the strength of it. So, I mean, I've never really heard any lawyer being called a devil's advocate. I mean, it is a term, but it, it's not used to describe lawyers. It's actually used to, as a strategy to test your argument. So another really controversial topic in actually generally most places in the world is the topic of prenups, prenuptial agreement. <laughs> Every time I bring this up, people have pretty much the same opinion about it. So I guess, can you explain what exactly is a prenup for people who don't understand it? And is it truly, because I know a lot of families, they will see it as you're predicting a divorce in the future. So what are your thoughts? Well, first explain what a prenup is. <laughs> Okay, well, a prenup, it's short for prenuptial agreement. It's basically um, a contract entered into a couple before they get married, which basically would regulate how you and your spouse will manage things during your marriage or in case your marriage dissolves or you get a divorce. And yeah, I mean, I think it's a popular opinion that people associate prenup with actually heading for divorce yeah. i think people will be like um okay so if you're prenup if you sign a prenup you don't love me you think we're not gonna last and i personally don't don't have that opinion i would happily sign one but not only not because i think i would be headed for a divorce but it's about, it's more than just about, you know, protecting your assets and predicting um, and anticipating what would happen if your marriage ends. A prenup does so much more than that, you know. Like I said, 
it's a contract and it regulates everything during your marriage as well. So it talks about who would handle finances. It talks about liabilities. Sometimes prenups also include provisions on how to raise your kids. And sometimes prenups can actually protect you, not in case of a divorce, but in case of other things. Like for example, a prenup protects you from each other's debts. When you're, if you sign a prenup and it really um, regulates that, you know, your money is yours and his money is his, when, God forbid, if he goes into bankruptcy, because of this division of asset, you know, you wouldn't be affected as well. And, you know, you can still support him or her if he goes into bankruptcy. Or, for example, if your spouse owns a business, your prenup would clarify the ownership of that business inside that agreement. So if something happens, again, God forbid, like he gets accused of money laundering or the company goes under or other types of allegations, it won't be the both of you that are in trouble, it won't be the both of you that are in prison, right? So, I mean, it's not just about heading for divorce or ending of marriage. It's literally something that would also help you regulate things during your marriage. And the thing is, I think what a lot of people don't see it as is the fact that it's kind of like a premarital counseling as well. Because when you discuss a prenuptial agreement, couples would, you know, are, would have to sit down and really talk directly and honestly about each other's expectations, each other's rights, each other's responsibilities. So in drafting a prenuptial agreement, they would be forced to talk about difficult things. You know, talk about what kind of marriage that you want and uh, what the legal ramifications would be. And I actually think that having to consider all this before your marriage can actually be helpful, right? So that, you know, you won't have to fight about it later on. Like, this is, this is, just, this is not like in every prenup, but um, I know that some prenups talk about how many kids they want, for example, right? So, for example, they have like a difference in opinion later on that won't, you know, that won't be cause for another fight because it's already something that you've defined, that you've regulated, that you've agreed on before. So, we need to remember like in the eyes of the law, when your marriage is registered, it's not just about love or romance, like the law sees it as a business contract between two people. So it's not about, you know, not being committed enough or not loving each other enough. You can still love them and trust them and still get a prenup. It's all, you know, legal. Well, if they change their mind in the future, like let's say how many kids they want, can they actually change parts of the yeah. prenup? Yeah, I mean, again, like in any agreements, as long as there's consent of both parties, you can. And you can write this after you get married, right? So like during the marriage? Um, yeah, so there are prenups that, well, not prenups, but there are nuptial agreements that are actually drafted after the marriage. That would be called a post-nuptial agreement. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's just before and after, pre and post. So you spoke just now about um, what happens when a spouse dies and that might actually be included in a prenup. 
is there then a lot of overlap between prenups and potentially like a will? Well, the thing is, if they put like in the prenup that what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours, you know, until the end of time, and then they would write a will. I mean, they wouldn't put in the will that it's it's really different because it says if in the prenup it says what's mine is mine, what's yours is in case of divorce. It might be different um, for in case they are deceased, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never really had to handle any overlap on that, but you know, if they are executing it with a lawyer, the lawyer would be able to, like, the testament person, like writing the will, would be able to make sure that it's not contradicting. Like, the prenup would say regulate during the marriage and if the marriage dissolves, but again. A will is a different thing, right? So it depends, really. Again, it's a business contract. Like, there's so many different ones. I can't really generalize them all. Yeah, I mean, with everything, I think another myth we're trying to bust is with everything happening is is law always correct or has law always changed? Yeah. I guess we can fit that to how has law evolved in the current COVID system to make that easier. Whether or not law is always correct, um, I think it's. Pretty relative concept、um, because it depends on what you mean by correct, right? The law is made by the people for the people, like by legislators, the citizens. So of course there are laws that you probably have heard of that people would see as unjust or unfair、um, mm-hmm. to some people.、Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, when a law is established, you it needs to be implemented. And、uh, if you believe it's unjust. You can lobby to change it. Like in Indonesia, if a law violates the constitution, you can bring it to the constitutional court, and they will review it and make a decision about it. So that's on your question whether law is always correct. But on the question of whether law has always changed or has always evolved, the answer is yes. The law evolves or changes over time to keep up with changes in the society, right? So as society changes, the law would also change. Because in order for the law to remain relevant and be able to be implemented, it needs to continuously reflect and uphold the current social norms. Like, for example,、uh, now there's a lot of law related to technology, cyber. It didn't used to be relevant, or it didn't used to be established back when technology was a thing, right? So now that is. Now that we have that in society, the law needs to change, and new laws need to be established in order to accommodate that. Now, it's also a really interesting thing that you brought、um, the COVID nineteen because it's right that COVID nineteen has definitely brought a lot of different changes in the world. Basically, not just Asia, but everywhere in the world. Like, I know the way that we live, the way that we work, eat, everything is. Completely different now. We have to wear masks everywhere. We have to,、um, like in Indonesia, you have to maintain at least 1.5 meters of distance between each other, and、um, you have to do this, you know, to protect ourselves and each other from、uh, transmission of the virus. And so the law needs to reflect that change in the society. Our legislators therefore issued laws to regulate this change. For example, in Jakarta, specifically in Jakarta, we're now going through what is called a transition period. 
So um, the transition period from a large scale social restriction or what you call, what a lot of people call as PSBB, where most public places are closed, offices are closed, people are staying at home. And that transition, the transition from that into a new normal way of living, like where places would reopen, but they would only reopen at half capacity. And there are health protocols that need to be followed. Now, in order to ensure that these protocols are all carried out properly and followed, the governor of Jakarta issued a regulation for this. And this regulation, uh, the law, it lays out all the protocols and the sanctions. For example, if you are seen outside without a mask on, you would be charged with a fee of 250,000 rupiah, or you would have to do community service. Now, before COVID-19, there wasn't this requirement, right? There was no obligation to wear a mask. There was no health protocols that need to be followed. There wasn't any of this. So that's how the law changes to fit the current COVID-19 circumstance. I think the more appropriate way thing to say would be a new law is established instead of you know changed. But yeah, it needs to continuously reflect our current times. In that regard, is it easier to change a law or is it easier to just write a new one? Okay, when you write a when you change a law, you have to write like the revision of it. So it's a whole. It's also a document. It would it would just be called revision to law number five year so and so on in a five year 2020 it would be it would still be like a new document but yeah it would be definitely be easier to revise than to completely create a new one so if you the thing is if you revise a law the concept is the same you're just revising certain provisions inside the law to make it more suitable right but if you create a new law it's basically you're regulating a whole new thing that hasn't been regulated. Like for example, um, I think you may have heard the law on the, I mean, the bill, the proposed bill to eradicate sexual violence in Indonesia. I think that's been, you know, causing a lot of, yeah, conjured up a lot of interest, a lot of yeah, discussion. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the thing is that is a bill. They want to propose that new law because it hasn't been regulated in a specific law before so that would be new but if they were to include it in the criminal code it would be a revision of the criminal code because we already have a criminal code we're just we, we just wanted to add certain provisions to it so that's the difference if you want to learn more about this uh, case in Indonesia right now so what's happening is that they're moving it away from the priorities from this list, this list right? So if you want to learn more about that, you should go to Reina's podcast with <laughs> with her partner, where she just actually discussed laws that are happening in Indonesia in relation to the current news. I just listened to it yesterday. It's really amazing. I think it's really interesting how sometimes the things that you advocate for is in the law. I know one friend of mine is very, very upset that this is a law that's getting pushed aside for the 50th, 100th time. The name is Uncovering Indonesia, I think. Yeah, go to their Instagram just to have more insights in this topic. Thank you for that. <laughs> oh, no worries. I mean, 
so sweet. Um, but yeah, what what we do is we basically talk in English about you know new laws that are coming out that would affect us all, new issues. So yeah, we we try to digest that, and it happens to just be our second episode that we discuss this RUPKS, the Sexual Violence Eradication Bill. Yeah, and you're right. It is because the legislators have decided to exclude it from the priority list this year, which means that this year they won't be discussing it at all. And so that angered a lot of people because it's been, you know, they've been waiting for this law to be enacted for years. It's a pressing issue in Indonesia, sexual violence issue. So kind of talk about that, kind of shed some light onto that issue. Um, we made we made that episode and yeah, thank you. <laughs> No problem. I think as a planner, I had to learn planning law, and I thought about why do I have to learn this law when I'm like never going to touch it. But I think now that I've been through it, and it's really hard. But now that I've been through planning law, I think knowing the boundaries of Toronto, especially, and what guides them. So we have like planning act, but we also have laws that regulate the. The growth of communities and stuff. So learning that really helped me just to position myself as a planner in Toronto. It might be different even in BC, but I think being more educated in law had me thinking about how we should be making these things more digestible. Because yeah. some law is so hard to understand, and I'm screaming at myself. <laughs> the lawyers are like, "This is not hard to understand. It's just saying this." And I'm like, "Explain." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're right. And the law, I think the thing is, I think there should be like summary for every law because I mean, a lot of people would need to touch upon the law, not just lawyers, but yeah. again, if you're a planner. Or you know, if you're a diplomat, or you're what else? Even businessmen, they would need to know a little bit about what actually what the law says in order to make sure that they're not doing anything wrong, yeah. but doing everything <laughs> legally, right? So, well, I guess that's why we have lawyers to kind of like read it for them <laughs> and explain it to them. Yeah. But yeah, I think now I I know that a lot of different. Courses like even if you take business or you take financing, there's always like a short course on introductory law, like introductory business law, right? Yeah. For some universities, so I think because it's it's important and it's and when you get a law degree, it isn't really guarantee that you would have to be a lawyer because hmm. some people would have a law degree just to have an understanding on how to comprehend reading legal documents, legal analysis, and all that. And then they would, you know, go into another industry. They can be a politician, a journalist, a diplomat. You know, it's it it's. I think a lot of we opens doors to a wide range of professions. So, so yeah, it's it is an interesting. It's annoying to read. Trust me, it's a lot. <laughs> oh yeah, document. I mean, some laws are like hundreds of pages. So I totally get what you mean. I think the first case law I ever read, I I, I accidentally read that the other plaintiff won, and then and then I said it out loud in class, and he's like, "Oh, that's not how it went." No, like I'm so sorry. I tried to read it, but it's so hard to understand. But I think from there, I also took a communication law, which is interesting because. 
like the internet doesn't have jurisdiction so it really depends for example when a crime happens it depends where you want to do the law thing it's a cost like suing someone and yeah. i'm just curious inga did you ever take a law course or like biotech <laughs> um biotechnologists have to have some understanding of the law in different countries or specific countries regarding specifically genetic modified organisms so gmos because we need to know like what the boundaries are so for example in europe it's more tightly regulated while in the us it's a lot they're more open to genetically modified organisms so we definitely have to learn that we have to learn about the laws surrounding biofuels and stuff like that but another one that i'm actually i'm not sure if this is specifically law but we had to learn something called the nagoya protocol and oh yeah yeah the nagoya protocol is one particularly very interesting one for science students because based on my understanding it protects biodiversity from being taken for research purposes by other countries yeah and are these parts of are these things more law or are they more just an understanding that people need to have it's 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 the law i mean legals especially international law students would actually have to to study this nagoya protocol the case laws relating to the nagoya protocol and it's really interesting because for law students we have a moot court like an international moot court yeah <laughs> you kind of pretend that you are in the international court of justice so you pretend that you're the counsel and then there there would be a judge the icj judge and he would like be asking you questions and everything right and the the case would be completely made up but it would be based on you know real cases and and this is an international thing so like in indonesia the winning team would go to dc for this it's called jessa and um I heard it years ago. Uh I mean yeah, I did it I did it when I was in law school and the rule in my in my law school was well, not the rule but it's it's kind of like a tradition that when you've done it um, and you graduate you coach your like the juniors right? Oh, and so yeah. yeah, the case was regarding biodiversity and it was the Nagoya protocol. That's why I smiled so hard because my <laughs> kids had to spend like 9 months researching the Nagoya protocol that I made me like so sick of hearing it like Nagoya protocol Nagoya protocol so when you heard when you said Nagoya protocol I'm like I smiled so hard it's like a huge flashback on those 9 months of working with my kids on it and that yeah that is that is a law it's um it's a protocol it's it's what's uh, agreed upon by states so it becomes something that you know is studied at for international law. I feel like Nagoya protocol is particularly important for Indonesia because it's so heavy in biodiversity. We have so much mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. I think a lot of countries would be eyeing for the stuff that we have for research purposes. So it was really interesting to know that such a protocol even exists. But how much law do you actually memorize? Because I've been through a MUN, Model United Nations. This is It's really confusing because I went through an MUN before and the person who was mentoring me basically said the case that we had was I think nuclear disarmament or cyber crimes those were the two MUNs that I've been through and they basically kept referring to the Roman statute and the Geneva convention and my friend said read it and I saw it and it was like hundreds of pages long yeah 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 
Abhi, <laughs> when I was doing Vijasa, but it's international law, right? And honestly, it's international is my passion. I mean, I really want to go into international human rights law. I love it. So yeah, I had to remember it. And when you're pleading, you have to pretend to be the ICJ. You have to be pretend to be the counsel representing a country in the ICJ. So you can't really, you know, embarrass yourself and not know the law or not be able to quote the law. I used to have to remember, you know, every passage and not just the Geneva Convention or the Rome Statute. I literally have to remember the case laws as well. So in order to strengthen your argument, you need to argue that um, you need to bring up or refer to cases where a, a court has applied that argument similarly. So you're saying, you're basically saying this, I'm just giving it to you in a casual term, you're basically saying, hey judge, that judge in another case in this court said this, so um, I'm saying this as well. I'm using that to strengthen my argument. So please consider it. So that's why it's kind of like something like that. So yeah, you have to remember not just the law, but the cases as well. And the year, mm -hmm. uh, the quote, uh, the name of the judge who um, accepted that. So yeah, you have to do that. <laughs> I think a, but, a, word, uh, a word I learned was precedent. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so like something I was doing and planning a lot was like, oh, if this building can build 10 meters, then I can build 10 meters because this building built it first. I'm like, all right, that's law. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's definitely it. It's called legal precedent. And, and the thing is, our the, the good thing is in when you actually law like when you're practicing law uh, you have to remember the important thing you have to remember the procedural law you have to remember some parts of the civil code to know that what is allowed and what is not you need to remember the criminal code as well you need to remember company law that is a really important one luckily your client will be like okay what article is this what page of law hopefully you can you can always refer to you can always open the law and refer to it it's interesting you need to have a so you you don't have to like have a photographic memory or like an especially good memory <laughs> but uh you can still look at it but uh it's good if you do i think the way i understand is you just kind of need to know which law goes above the other law yeah yeah because yeah. in planning it's like the planning act is first and then there's other things like the growth plan the provincial plan uh, goes under the big planning act yeah but what happens in court if there's no like let's say we're in a united nations thing like mun stuff what happens if there's no precedent or law in regards to the case that you're talking about well then you have to you know, you're forced to have to set a new precedent for it. You have to provide legal arguments that are not dependent on the precedent since you don't have it. So you have to really apply the law at hand. You can try to find similar ones, you can kind of similarize it. You say that, you know, the way that they applied it, although it's not the same, you can, you know, say stuff like that. But if not, then you would have to be forced to set a new precedent. And that's one of the most difficult things when my year, we were doing it for cybercrime. 
which not a lot of cases, right? Because this was five years ago. This was five years ago when I was still in law school. There were not a lot of cases. There were some, but like not enough to be similarized with every situation, right? So, and that's where it gets tricky because there's not a lot of law on it. There's not a lot of precedent. So you have to learn to be able to argue without depending on available resources. And that's definitely an interesting experience. Yeah, because I was watching the movie about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the one on the baseball Love that. Honestly, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think they were talking yeah. about how like the precedent worked against them. Yeah. Or there wasn't really a clear precedent and that was definitely like an interesting one because it seemed like all the odds were against them. The law, the precedent set against them. Yeah. And they managed to win the case, which was super yeah. it was so fun to watch. Exactly, exactly. If you can't rely on precedent, you have to rely on yourself, on you how to formulate your agreement your argument to make it seem convincing and that's basically lawyering 101 <laughs> negotiating convincing people presenting public speaking arguing so yeah and and she she did it so remarkably that she was able to finish all that i love that movie <laughs> <laughs> she herself is amazing though i think another yeah. oh, i was gonna say i really like aoc <laughs> yeah, AOC, AOC is, is, is great. I think, I mean, I, I love how she's very, very upfront and direct about the issues that she's fighting for. I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty different because Ruth Bader Ginsburg is, you know, she's law and she's a lawyer. She's, she's now, uh, she's also a Supreme Court judge, whereas AOC is a politician. But uh, AOC is someone that I think is a really great female as well because she's one of those politicians that knows exactly what the issues that she's fighting for. So it's very refreshing to see. Um, and she's very direct about it. And yeah, I, I, I see, although she's not a lawyer, I see I see her as, I see her as someone that would, you know, set a lot of presidents, new presidents in the political world. I think that's about all the time that we have today. Thank you so much, Reina, for coming thank on. You. Yeah, thank you for catching up with me since middle school. <laughs> <laughs> I had so much fun. You guys are so much fun to talk. <laughs> thank you. Again, don't forget to listen to Reina's podcast. We'll link it in the Insta. Yes, we will. That is so sweet. Thank you so much. I guess I'll see you guys next week for another interesting test. Bye. Yellow, hi. Thank you for listening to the Peak Boredom Podcast. This is Mars and Inga signing off. And don't forget to tune in next week. Please. Bye.